Welcome to On The Spot with Dr. Michael Walker. I am excited to have our guest with us today. This is an awesome individual that we have the opportunity to chat with, and I promise you, you're going to enjoy that the time we have together. At the age of six, he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior at Oak Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Albany, Georgia, under the leadership of Reverend E.L. Wilson. He received his undergraduate degree in business management from Albany State University. That's right, HBCU in the house. He obtained a Master of Biblical Studies from Andersonville Theological Seminary and is presently pursuing a Master's of Divinity from Luther Rice Seminary. At the age of 23, he acknowledged his call into the preaching ministry under the leadership of Dr. Keem A. Simmons at the Liberty Baptist Church in Alabaster, Alabama. In 2009, he was elected pastor of Spring Hill Baptist Church, which is located in Lineville, Alabama. He currently serves and is a member of various denominational, community, and civic organizations, a member of Alabama State Missionary Baptist Convention and National Baptist Convention of U USA, Inc., moderator of the Friendship Western Union District Baptist Association, co-chair of the Alabama State Missionary Baptist Convention Pastors Conference, founder and president of Washington Heights Community Outreach, Inc., member of the Alabama Democratic Reform Caucus Executive Committee, and member of the NAACP and SCLC. He's been recognized by Rural Leader Magazine as one of the 40 under 40 leaders across rural America in 2015, and in 2018 was part of the inaugural class uh, of Central Alabama's 40 under 40. He's led in several numerous capacities, providing leadership in, in many settings. He's a sought after facilitator, lecturer, preacher. He's a pastor. He's adopted the motto of the late Dr. Gardner C. Taylor, pastor emeritus of Concord Baptist Church of, of Brooklyn, New York, where the late pastor would say, I don't strive to be known as a great preacher, but I do strive for people, people to feel what I have tried to preach what a great gospel it is. The eldest son of the late Dr. Edmund H. Solomon and Dr. Gwendolyn M. Johnson Solomon, along with his lovely wife, Mrs. Calandra Holloway Solomon. They are founders of Holloway Solomon Enterprises. It's a treat to talk with none other than Pastor E. Tremaine Solomon. Welcome, 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 Pastor Solomon to Own the Spot with Dr. Michael Walker. How are you? How are you? I am trying to get your video back, but how are you today? I am doing well, Pastor, and I thank you for uh, such a wonderful uh, introduction. Um, as you were reading those things out, I was like, is that really me? <laughs> but I'm thankful for what God has done uh, in our lives. Um, so we're thankful how God has worked. It, it is awesome. It is awesome. And as you can tell, it, 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 this pastor on this end is working out the technology to ensure that both you and I can be seen <laughs> on the screen, brother. Uh, it is just an awesome time to be able to talk with you. I've been so excited, man, all week, actually, uh, to share with you because you are doing such an awesome job uh, there in Alabama. It seems like everything that you do, everything you touch, you, you're doing it in a way uh, that not only bless the Lord, but you bless the people. 
uh, who need to be blessed. And I, I just, I just think it's so important that we hear voices like yours uh, to help us. Well, I'm appreciative for this opportunity to share and be a part of this podcast. And uh, man, all I can say is that the Lord has has truly ordered my steps and my stops. Um, that's kind of something that sticks with me. Um, the Lord has just graced me uh, with his favor and for this season of work of ministry. So I'm appreciative of that. Oh, wonderful. And, and sooner or later, we're going to get you out here to Dallas, Fort Worth. Oh, we would love to come. We would love to come. Bring the word in DFW, my brother. And you rocking that beard. I'm loving it. You rocking that Just trying try something new, cuz. Just trying something new. <laughs> Just trying something new. <laughs> For those who don't know, this is my cousin. It is the treat, man, to always be able to talk with fam. Yes, yes. Yeah. Putting in work for the law and doing it with excellence, man. I mean, just everything you do, you do it with excellence and you do it with a heart of sincerity. And I thoroughly believe, man, that there's so many people who really need to hear from pastors like yourself who have a heart for the people, a love for the Lord, and can preach the word. Man, again, uh, you know, uh, when I think about where the Lord has brought us, how the Lord's hand has been over our, over our lives from, from the beginning, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, appreciative because uh, I realize it's nothing that I have done. It's just been God who's, uh, again, ordered my steps, who navigated our paths, who brought us to this present time, uh, has shaped and molded us and put people in our, in our path providentially that have played a part in shaping and molding us to be who we are today. Good deal. Well, I'm gonna, I'm just going to jump right in because I want to just talk with you on a range of topics while okay. I've got your, your time because I know it's valuable and we have all of your wisdom and insight. I want the audience to get the best of the time that we have together. So I'm going to jump right in with the pandemic that's been upon us now. Wow. With nearly two years We've been wrestling with this pandemic. It's brought numerous challenges on leaders at the denominational level, at the regional level, the state level, regional level, national level, local level. Churches have felt in very real time the yes. pandemic and the leaders, the pastors and leadership teams of our local churches have really felt the challenges of the pandemic. What lessons have you learned during this pandemic? I would say, Dr. Walker, one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that change is inevitable. We, we, we know that, but in ministry and in, and in the work of the church, it seems as if sometimes change, uh, the church is the last place to adapt to change. And so the pandemic for me, uh, seeing it from the scope of our local church, seeing it in our denominational work, our community work, is that uh, we had to adapt and we had to change on the fly. Uh, for us, I, I got married um, the week before everything starts shutting down. I'm out of the country uh, on our honeymoon while things are beginning to shut down. We're in Jamaica. I'm getting texts from church leaders, my, my, my friends, um, trying to put our heads together to see what are we gonna do? Things are shutting down. And so on the fly, pastors around the country had to adjust, had to make changes, um, had to remodel the way they did ministry. And the key word was trying to stay connected to your people during that time. So uh, one of that, you know, the biggest lesson I would say I've learned is being open to change, being open to 
reimagining how ministry can be done, and then uh, also restructuring our churches um, to do ministry in this new abnormal that we're living in. I love that. I really love that you highlighted reimagining. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the importance of reimagining. Any, any ministry, any organization, not just church, um, that has not taken a self-examination of their operation or what they were doing um, pre-COVID to now in the middle of this situation, because we're not out of it yet. I mean, we, we're still seeing various variants. We're still pushing people to be vaccinated, still pushing people to get booster shots and to educate. We're learning on the fly. Uh, any organization who has not taken the time to, to reevaluate themselves and what they were doing uh, are doing themselves an injustice. And the two words that I believe that the Lord has, has kind of dropped in my spirit during this time is as I look at my church, as I look at the things that I have the, the opportunity to play a part in leading, is it effective and is it efficient in these times? So if it's, if it's not effective, it's not efficient, why are we still doing it? Wow, <laughs> that, that's good stuff. Because it, you know I, I look at it from an organizational level as well. If it's ineffective, we need to go and throw that out. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, we, we're seeing so many things that we fought in the church we had to do. Um, back in, uh, November, I had a think tank with my leaders um, and, I, and the whole centered around rethinking how we do church, you know, just just beginning to have, you know, I, I had been saying this while we were out of the sanctuary, when we were totally virtual. I had been saying that for, for over a year to them that when we come back, it's not going to be the same. We, we get back in uh, around uh, Easter of 20, 2021 uh, with all our protocols in place. I'm, I'm still saying that it's, things are going to be different. And so the Lord said, listen, you need to take your leaders away, uh, take them off site, have a meeting with them so that they understand what different is going to look like uh, and understand that it's okay to mourn uh, some of the things that we used to do. Yeah, I miss it too, but it's not efficient. It's not effective. So why are we still doing it? I take one for example, so I'm going to hold it too long. Uh, Bible study in most churches was driven to be in person. The pandemic taught us that uh, we can do Bible study virtual means, whether it's through Zoom, like we're doing tonight, whether it's via a conference call, uh, whatever it, we choose to use, whatever means of technology we choose to use, it's available to us. Uh, my early years at Spring Hill, I've been there now, I'll be 13 years this April. Um, it was nothing for me to see 60, 70 people in the early years of my tenure on a Wednesday night. Over the years, that begins the wane, decline of some to whatever people become busy, other priorities. Um, we the pandemic comes upon us, causes us to shift. Uh, I'm seeing now uh, an increase in Bible study attendance because we're doing it with, through virtual means. So why would I go back to doing Bible study in person? Does it make sense? Here's not only. Can we, can I reach more people? They not got a, the hustle and bustle of trying to go to work and get home and cook dinner. No, they can just cook dinner, tune in, not show their picture or, or, or dial in via phone, uh, get the word, get the lesson. And the church saves on electricity costs because the campus is not being used that much. There it is. 
in, in, in executive circles, we like to say, if you are not changing, your organization is dying. Oh, oh, yes. I, I say that all the time, that anything that doesn't change eventually will die. Yes. And uh, the pandemic, uh, from a denominational standpoint, for one who has the opportunity to serve in leadership in that point, I always say in our meetings that we have to look at this as an opportunity um, because there are a lot of churches who are uh, on life, who are on life support before the pandemic, who are now actively transitioning mm -hmm. because they have failed to shift. And this shifting didn't just happen with the pandemic. It was coming before the pandemic just sped up the process. I would agree. I would agree. And many of the items you touched on are really in that wheelhouse of leadership. And there's a question that I really want to pose to you and get your input on it. And I'll give you some background on how I arrived at this question. Okay. I just so happened to be listening to uh, Dr. Jamal Bryant, mm -hmm. who was giving a brief interview on some topics related to leadership and, and the state of, of the Black church in America. Okay. And he was talking about we're in a state where the where, where we're seeing the baton not be passing soon enough mm -hmm. to the next generation of leaders. And, and it was controversial in one sense, what he was saying. And I thoroughly get it because sometimes when you are in the role of leadership, seeing the finish line when it's in front of you is hard to accept. Yeah. I, yeah. I thoroughly get that. Yeah. Okay. But but what I also get what he was saying had some validity. Mm. Um, and I thought, I know pastors who are leading great ministries could really talk to that, that topic that he was trying to get to from a, from a global standpoint. And I wanted to put this out there to you. How would you describe the state of leadership in the Black church today? Uh, challenging. Mm. Um, the pandemic has, again, forced some pastors to realize that this is not a season they want to lead in. And really? so some of them have said, who are close to the brink of retirement, I'm getting out now. So we've seen churches across America have some transition in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, pastors have been called to churches in the middle of a pandemic. That's crazy because no one would have thought that we, you would see that happening. Um, so some pastors who were at the cusp of retirement said, listen, I'm out of here. <laughs> let, let, you, let me get you, let, let me help you find somebody. But then in some instances, there are some who have still not seen the shift, who refuse. They've seen it. They just refuse to accept it. They refuse that things won't go back to what they're accustomed to. And they refuse to come to grips with that. And so we must understand in leadership that this thing is always bigger than us. My, my church thinks it's funny, my leaders do, because I, I begin to tell them lately that, you know, though I, I'll be 41 in April, uh, if the Lord decides to leave me here at the Spring Hill Church or decides to move me somewhere else, I only have about maybe 25 more years of pastoring in me. They say, well, what, 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 you, why do you say that? Because I don't want to be somewhere leading to where I don't realize when my time is up and I see mm. that everything God used me to build for his glory, 
my sting around too long tears it down. Uh, that is so interesting what you said there, Pastor. So it really does sound like and certainly affirms that in your vision, in terms of a, a lifetime of a ministry, that just as there's a start, there is an end. We have to learn in the Black church how to exit gracefully, um, how to pass the baton. It does not mean, do not, it does not mean that your ministry is over. Uh, it means that you are transitioning from one, from one situation, from pastoral ministry to now moving to a role where you can still go preach the gospel. You may spend time teaching somewhere. You may develop cohorts to, the, to mentor pastors along the way. Uh, there is still work for you to do. It does not have to be identified with passing, pastoring a church. And so I've seen a whole lot of pastors in my time of, of, of ministry, which is uh, the 18 years of preaching this year, um, 17 years of pastoring, uh, that I've seen a whole lot of pastors who I admired who missed their exit. Mm. And so the church suffered because this is like, this, this is a journey, this is a highway. And at some point, if you don't mix your, you, if you miss your exit, you don't know when the next exit may come. And the next exit could be you transitioning out in death and it's too long, you stayed too long, where the people have too much love and respect for them to have that, hard, that, that hard conversation with you. So they begin to wane. Yeah, yeah, off. yeah. The church begins to decline. Everything around you is declining, but you feel like because you can get to the pulpit and say a few words, that you can just hang on. And so I don't want to do that. I, uh -huh. I want to be in good health, exit the pulpit, exit pastoring people, leading people, while I can still be in relatively good health and not spend all of my life pastoring people. And so whether it's 65, whether it's, uh, I definitely know I don't want to do it past 70, but I, I'm, I'm at this stage in my ministry, I'm thinking about the big picture and trying to make decisions in my life that where I don't have to depend to stay at the church. You know, it's so interesting. You, you say that missing your exit. I recall when I was working on uh, my, doc, my doctoral, doing my doctoral work, and we actually had to do some research and study on some um, ministry transition, mm -hmm. exit, exiting yes. um, your, your post of leadership. And you hit the nail on the head, found countless examples of pastors who, respectfully speaking, may have been at the helm too long. Yes. And it would, and to your point a moment ago, incredibly hard discussion to have at the local level with a pastor who has poured a lot of, a lot into a ministry or community. And he doesn't see that the time is now to exit, but you hitting it, things around him is not necessarily growing again. Or, we're falling behind in some areas. And it seems that we should be having a, a larger discussion. Yes. To your point on this exiting gracefully. Yes. Um, when, I, when I look at people like someone out there in, in your neighborhood in Houston, Texas, and I look at Willow Avenue Baptist Church, and I look at um, how Dr. Lawson was used to found the church, how he intentionally brought Dr. Cosby on his yep. staff. 
intentionally passed the baton. Even here in Alabama, our, our former National Baptist president of the USA Incorporated, Dr. Julia Scruggs at Huntsville, served that church admirable for 42 years, prepared for his exit, passed the baton to their current pastor, Dr. Andarius Butler. Those are examples in the black church and there are many others, but those are things I've paid attention to. And so I look at that and I was watching Wheeler Avenue's building dedication uh, a few days ago. The fact that Dr. Lawson was able to still be around, still have relevance, still be a part of the ministry, but does not have to be the senior pastor that leads the church. Mm -hmm. Living examples of what that looks like. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and had enough vision. Yes, yes. To say, I, I need to transition the ministry. This, this, this church needs to be transitioned. And I'm now, now I'm going to do my part to help the church find its next pastor before they bury me. Exactly. And so with my church currently, um, we, we have, we're in the process of restructuring things because of the pandemic. We're redoing some things, reorganizing. And a lot of what I tell my leaders now, we are doing this so that we will be better for the present and the future, so that we can pass this off to a future legacy, future generation down the road uh, in better hands, but also preparing for them to be successful. Even though I may have some years left, I'm thinking now, putting things in place of how, when the time comes, I can exit gracefully. That, that's good stuff. And we're gonna stay right here in this space, just on things that leaders think about. Mm -hmm. and, and I wanna share some information with you that uh, you may be familiar with. It was a recent study done last year, about this time by the uh, Pew Research mm -hmm. Center. They do a lot of work on religious studies and they were looking at trying to see what's going on with young folk when yes. it comes to attending church, worship life, and so forth. And so they identified about 8,600 Black Americans mm. to gain a snapshot of kind of what, what's going on at the congregational level mm -hmm. and start looking at some of their beliefs now that we are, you know, post-George Floyd, mm. that we're in COVID dealing with a pandemic, that we also have a, a former Trump presidency. What's, what's going on with young, you know, Black Americans as it pertains to uh, attending uh, predominantly Black churches, attending church as a whole? And one of the things that came out of the, that study was more than 50% of the Black adults who are rightly identified as Gen Z or millennial or, or even some Gen Xs, they noted you know, I don't predominantly go to church every week anymore. I don't attend a predominantly black, black church. And, and when I do attend, I can truly say it's just a couple of times a year. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and when I think about that, you know, factoring in, we still dealing with a, quite a bit of racial tension. Yes. In our land that has been, you know, enormously aggravated over the last four years. No, yeah, they'll get, not counting our current president, but let's look back four years. This was enormously aggravated. And to say anything otherwise would just be disingenuous now. That there was a lot of racial aggravation uh, in the past presidency. 
we also had a lynching televised. Yes. Okay, in the 21st century. My position is Brother Floyd was lynched on yes. live TV. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's my position. You. I'm with you. Okay, so now we when we say, okay, how do young African-American believers or non-believers trying to find Jesus, what does this information say to us as leaders? How do we improve on this? How do we reach those folks? Mm. I think we have to be real with ourselves and ask ourselves, are we, let me, let me say it this way. Because many people think when you start talking about reaching those various younger generations, that you have to change everything that you do. I, I, I shared with my leaders back in that think tank that uh, I gave the example of a Coca-Cola bottle. Uh, it was a 20 ounce bottle I sat on the podium. I said, and I asked the room, and some of them are older, I said, when you first had your first drink of Coke, what was it packaged in? Some of them say a glass bottle, some said only a fountain drink, uh, whatever it may be. So over the years, the packaging changed, but the contents or what's in Coca-Cola stayed the same. So as it is with, with, with ministry, the message of Jesus stays the same, but how do we package to make it relevant to them today? Also, um, the church had become so inward focused that everything was centered around a building that I believe that COVID, the pandemic has taught us that ministry does not have to be centered around a building, but we can get the message of Jesus Christ out further and in more palatable ways that reach the masses, but also still do ministry. Because I think the reason some of them go to these, uh, um, these larger ministries that have multi-sites and all of that um, one, sometimes some go from talking conversations I've had with younger people. Uh, well, I, no one asks me to do anything. So some of it's a lack of accountability. Okay. Um, in my opinion, others is because they will say, well, they do service project. They do this, they do that. And so sometimes younger people, what I found in, in, in talking to them on the regular, trying to understand what's going on with them. Um, and I have, have a few that, that, that are courting our church and they say, well, what, what, what draws me to your church is y'all do so much in the community. So they're looking, there's a new spirit of activism in these future generations, these new generations that's coming up, coming up among us. And they wanna feel as if the church is being relevant. The church is really doing something, being impactful. Are we just coming here just to have service and, and, and click up in our various clicks and just go back home uh, and never, no real transformation takes place. Mm. No real change takes place. We shout on Sunday in the words of Freddie Haynes, um, but we got to have some do you lulu with our hallelujah. Um, you got to, there. we have a call and a responsibility to our communities. And so when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, I believe in ways, um, and, and, and I'm not saying that you got to do every uh, everything that, that they, they think should be done, but I think you have to be creative. I think that's the word I'm trying to find in how you share Jesus in a way that you reach the masses, 
but also show them that you are trying to still be the hands and feet of God here on earth. So there got to be some work that goes along with it. Yeah, I um, love it. And I you got to engage and bring them in the process. My, my media team is, is, is full of people in that in those generations. <laughs> they can work it, right? <laughs> they, they can work it. Here, here, here's what I said. You tell me what you need. I'll make sure you get what you need. There and it so is. We've been a work in progress with our, but, but I, we understood that, listen, that when we came back in the, search for, in the sanctuary after over a year of being totally virtual, that we could not, and I've heard pastors ignorantly say this, well, I'm going to turn off my, my, uh, my stream so they can come back to the sanctuary where well, well, you go, your church is going to die. Mm. Because those younger people are working, or those younger people may not, just for whatever reason, may not come to the sanctuary. But the church must understand now that the church is a hybrid ministry that you offer in person, but also the virtual aspect. Because I have people from all over the country who watch our virtual service, who are connected to our church, they grew up there, they're from a little old line where they moved up to this place, network, but now they feel connected to what goes on in the church versus just hearing grandma or mama tell me, I can tune in every Sunday yeah. and I can watch pastor preach a word to me. I can watch it on Mondays. One of my younger members tells me who lives in another out of state. I watch on Mondays when I go to work and then I can send my tithes when I get paid because now we have all these means for them to give back to the place that 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 that, that fostered their spiritual journey and so we have to be open we have to bring them to the table we got to share jesus in creative ways um and we don't have to change who jesus is don't have to change the uh the the, the components or the basics of the message but how we present the message is important i uh, love it i love and, it and man, so because... and bring them to the table that's right uh, that's right that you need to hear their input. That's good stuff. Because the truth is, over the course of time, history, we know that labels may change. But to your point, the content. The content, don't, you know, don't content we, remains the same. We're, and we're, we're in an age now. We're, we're still preaching uh, a Jesus. That's right. That was born. Uh, that was that 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 that, that walked this earth. <laughs> that healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, that saved the lost, and he died so that we all may have the opportunity. We, we, we're preaching that. But, but, but two, we're not just preaching the cross, but we're also preaching the fact that Jesus is with you in every aspect of your life, that we're making the scriptures come alive to everyday uh, situations. Because they may say, well, Pastor, I have heard about Daniel and the lion's den all my life, but how does that relate to me? Well, you may have that situation on the job that makes you feel like you're in a lion's den. Mm -hmm. you, I, I've heard about being about, about Noah about uh, Jonah being trapped in the belly of a fish. Well, you may have had a situation where you feel that you've been swallowed up. Making the word of God uh, transportable to the everyday lives is key. I love that. I love that. I'm going to take it a little bit further because I, I I just believe you've got some knowledge to share with us mm -hmm. about the re the reality of a 21st century America still trying to figure out what to do with the African. Now, let me just set this up a little bit for you, Pastor. The African has been in this country for 20 generations. 12 of them were enslaved. Yes. 
Okay, you can arguably count another two, no, another three. We were wrestling through Jim Crowism, mm -hmm. uh, literally from the moment of the Emancipation Proclamation. The nation started wrestling with what do we do with the African? And I said a moment ago to say that we don't have a racial issue in America is to really be disingenuous. And if you are a believer, it, it is to make knowledge that the truth might not be in you. Because yes. this is just a reality. There's a yes. real tension in America. Historically, the Black church has played a vital role in what I would argue is the freedom of all people. True, true. At the, at, at the sake and stake of African-Americans who pay a bloody price mm. for it, but that, that work was for all. Yes. And it's, you cannot deny that the black church was not only out front, it was also doing its work to, to, to ensure that the middle and the caboose was covered. Mm -hmm. And here we are 2022. We, we've seen our legend, the great John Lewis go on to glory, Mount Ancestor. Mm -hmm. We see voting rights under attack in many ways. We see a lot of shenanigans. Is the black church still able to be a driving force today as we fight this racism? Well, um, we both were born and raised in a place that was kind of ground zero. Hey, Top uh, the King called it the toxic dump, the yes. most racist place he ever went in the state of Georgia was Albany, Georgia. Yes. His literal words, I got it on a bookshelf, yeah. Yeah. toxic yeah. racial dump. And then, <laughs> um, you know, interesting that, that the Lord navigates my family, my dad steps to move us to Alabama to literally ground zero yeah. place. So I'm surrounded around it. I pastor in a county, uh, in the, where I, the county that I pastor in is 75% or no, 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 no. Um, probably 83% uh, Caucasian. Um, so we, we see the effects of us, of a, of an evil systemic system in every facet of life. Uh, the black church was such a uh, dynamic or such so relevant for or the driving force behind a lot of the freedoms that we have because it was the only thing that we owned. And, you know, when they put us out of their churches, <laughs> we, we founded our own churches and many of our churches, if you read their history, which I tell every pastor when you go to a, a, a church, read his history. Uh, my church was founded in 1840. It reads that Mr. John and Mr. So-and-so decided that their workers, code word for slaves, needed a place to worship. <laughs> and so they founded the Antioch Baptist Church and the church later moved to a spring on a hill and changed the name to Spring Hill, 1840. So this year, my church will be 182 years old. Interesting enough about the church I pastor is it was the first black school. It housed the first school for African-Americans in that area. Wow. 
it later gave land across the street for there to be a black school. When we go back and find old minutes from, from meetings, uh, from school board meetings back in the day, they would say the Negro school asked for such and such $2 and something to buy coal for the winter and it was denied. Mm. The church and people in the community would put their nickels and dimes together to buy coal for the school to have so they could heat the school in the winter. And then because people in the community were so poor, they would come get them a shovel and get coal as well. So it shows us, and, and that's just our story, but there are a lot of churches whose schools were birthed out of. There are a lot of churches who universities, HBCUs were birthed out of. So uh, the work of, of freedom, the work of civil rights, well, should always be a part of the DNA of every black church. You should never, pastors should never lose, black pastors should never lose their prophetic voice. Mm. Um, our people uh, were beat up all week long. And when they came to church, the reason they dressed up the way they did, because now they felt like they were somebody. The church was a place they, were, they, had, they had come to to be empowered. And we must never think that that does not still happen today. When people tune into our services, whether they come through those doors, they're beat up all week long from various situations. And the church has to continue to be a place of empowerment. The church has to continue to be the place that when we cannot depend on the government, when we cannot depend on anyone else to do for us, that we do for our people what nobody else will do. This America has dealt with not, this is not the first pandemic America has dealt with because we've been dealing, as we said, as you outlined, the pandemic of racism for, for almost 500 years. From the time we came to this country, we were considered less than three-fifths of a man. And it's crazy, they still won't even go and change that language, but they, but they, but they still, you know. Uh, here we are seeing today or yesterday where a coach has to take the NFL, has to sue the NFL because of their hiring practices. What saddens me the most is that because of how far we've come, we still people don't people who look like you and I still don't realize we still have a long way to go. And just because they give us some spots and some room and and give us an opportunity to be in certain places with them does not mean that they look at us as equals. I have a deacon who serves as a county commissioner. I tell this all the time because it stuck with me. Um, he's been a county commissioner for almost 30 years. And he said, um, people call him radical in the community. People say he's a trouble, right? Or trouble, troublemaker uh, on the people of, of, of the Caucasian who are in power to so call him a trouble, a troublemaker. He says, Reverend, because I, many times I was, a, I'm the only black on that commission. They don't wake up in the morning thinking about us. So it's my job in those meetings to make them think about us. That's the difference, isn't it? Sometimes when you are the only African-American yes. in that room, the only yes. Afro-Latina in the room, Yes, you don't just get to come and be on the committee. You bring a people with you every, every time you show up. Every community, 
uh, community I've sat on in my time as that pastor in that community. Um, I let them know I'm not here to be your friend <laughs> because I represent a, a group of people that you don't think about anymore. And so there may be times when you think um, this, you know, we should just do this. And I say, oh, 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 wait a minute. Have y'all thought about this? Uh, it's my responsibility to prick your conscience, to think about people who look like me. And I got politically put off a committee by the mayor uh, because me and him do not always sit horses or have not set horses because of me standing up for the people who look like us. Uh, and and, and uh, last year I was politically put off a committee. Threatened, he threatened to withhold funding for them if I continue to be the chair of this committee um, because of my stance against him. Uh, and so it didn't bother me. I walked out of that room after telling them how I felt about that, how did I felt that they were, though they say they knew he was wrong, but if you're going to go along with this, you are just as complicit as he is. Um, I walked out of that room uh, with my conscience clear, my head high, because I represented the people who I serve in that community that look like me. That, that, that's, and that's the reality uh, of so many pastors uh, mm -hmm. uh, of African descent that are serving in communities, serving their communities well, uh, and as well as in the marketplace and in the business sector, you cannot serve without bearing the responsibility of representing a whole people. Because I got to go back and look at them. I preach them <laughs> right, right. I got to go back home, y'all. I, I got to look at them in the community when they when they say, Pastor Solomon, this is what's going on. And they know that once I've done my research, I'm going to stand with them and stand for them. And mm -hmm. it does not matter to me who it is. Um, because you're going to hear us. You're going to you're going to respect us and you're not just going to push us to the side. Hey, and as real as it is, they didn't agree to send you down there to represent us. Exactly. You to do harm to us. Exactly. <laughs> we didn't exactly. sign up for that. And that's exactly. something we bear. We exactly. have to bear that in our sensibilities as we're serving uh, the kingdom well and the Lord. Because I'm going to pivot a little bit now because I okay. want to know what motivated you to seek out leadership? What piqued your interest about leading? Well, it's interesting, but sometimes I, I find myself, I guess, some people say at the right place at the right time. I think I find myself at the wrong place at the wrong times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, uh, first of all, just pastoring a church, you know, people just assume a lot of times that you can lead. And that's a whole nother conversation in itself. Yeah. Um, but one of my mentors always said to me that, you know, you don't just pastor a church when you're called to that church, but you pastor that community. Whether those people in that community go to your church or another church, you're responsible to that community. And so um, leadership roles have just kind of, God has just kind of put them on me, has called me to them in an extent. Um, denominationally, uh, I kind of just, the Lord allowed my path to cross with a lot of senior pastors who saw something in me, uh, saw that I was willing, I was willing to listen to them. I was willing to just be around them and not talk and just kind of be a sponge and just soak up 
what they were saying. And over time, they began to trust me. In my first pastorate, uh, I'll never forget, um, in, a little, in a place called Gaston, Alabama, uh, uh, I was there for about four years. Um, the minister's conference was in a minute, was kind of defunct. They were trying to resurrect it. And some senior pastors, one who actually knew our Uncle Clarence from National wow. Convention, um, called me, the late Reverend A.A. Scales, and said, Solomon, we're going to get this thing back going, and I think you ought to be the young man that leads it. And so him and another senior pastor, Reverend Dr. Lee, Reverend Dr. W.H. Granger, nominated me to be president of the minister's conference there at 20-something years old. Um, and so from there, you know, other positions were entrusted to me. Uh, one of our denominate Alabama State Convention statesmen was, was my neighbor while I lived in Gaston. And he kind of um, gave me or introduced people to me, um, looked out for me, um, kind of took me along, passed me on to other people who kind of have just kind of entrusted me uh, with various positions. And, and before I knew it, you know, the Lord always allowed me to serve faithfully and, and do the best I could with it. Uh, and I've always went into a position to uh, my, with, with the idea of working my way out of it. Mm, really? um, when I was in corporate America, when I worked for International Dairy Queen as a training manager, um, my supervisor, my, my boss would say to me, he would say, Tremaine, I'm, I'm teaching you uh, what you need to know so that you can work out, so I can work out my position so you can take my spot. And so at the same time, you're grooming someone else to take your spot. So whatever position I've had, I'm always finding people um, to bring along with me up the ladder uh, to provide whatever insight I may have, to, to expose them so that people begin to know who they are. Um, and so when God moves me from one position, they're capable to fill it the next. And so That's that terrible. is a blessing for me uh, in this. I'm always, I realize that however the Lord elevates me, whatever role it is, it's not just for me, but it's for me to give other pastors, other uh, people, other leaders opportunities to lead. Because I know you can't do it all as a leader. You can't micromanage and do everything. Um, and so I try to uh, take people um, that the Lord laid on my heart, put them in positions to be successful, give them the tools to be successful. Um, and that kind of works out, has worked out for me along this journey. That's good stuff. And you know, one of the things is I was listening to you, to you share about that. And I thought about something related to leading and sort of the state that we're in. You are an alum of an HBCU. Um, HBCUs have been in the news here very recently with yes. uh, these bomb threats. Mm -hmm. um, but also prior to that, seeing Deion Sanders come and take on a head coaching position at Jackson State. Yes. And on the day he gives his first public statement, he makes it clear that the Lord sent him there hmm. on assignment. And then to see the work that went into the program over the, you know, from spring ball to their first full season, ending up at a championship game 
to see Eddie George. Yes. Take tennis, take come in and step in. And he's now head coach Tennessee State. Yeah, my, my wife is an alarm TSU. That's her alarm. Look at yeah, to, yeah. to hear that Jerry Rice is now considering coaching, to hear Hugh Jackson. Yes, yes, yes. Coming to HBCU. Okay. To when I think about historically bad colleges and universities and what they mean and have meant to us as a people in our time here as part of the part of the diaspora. I'm trying to figure out, and this is one of my greatest regrets. I can say this with you and the family <laughs> here on the spot. This is one of my greatest regrets academically. When I look at my academic pedigree, I did not come through at any level at HBCU. But I remember the value of when you've had the chance to go off into some of these other venues, you have a responsibility to come home, mm -hmm. right? And all that you learned over yonder, you need to be able to come on back in here and pour into your people. Yes. Right? And, and I want to put this out there to you as a leader. How can we do a better job, folks like myself, the academics who took a path that's more of a hybrid path where we've got some pastoral stuff in our background mm. and we've got this heavy academic component because we want to have one foot in the university and kind of one foot over here in ministry and a, and a toe over here and a thing over there. How can we do a better job at assisting you? Um, How can we partner better? That's interesting. Um, I think, again, even though as much as we value HBCUs, it's important that we, as a people, give back to them. Yes. Um, not only, uh, first and foremost, financially, because they're all struggling financially. Okay. Um, so that, that's, that's one big way. And I say that because with me being involved in our denominational work here in Alabama, we operate HBCU, our convention, the Selma University. Um, and so being having the privilege to be close to that situation as a denominational leader and uh, uh, knowing that we're always raising funds for it, uh, knowing that uh, they're asking for people to be monthly contributors. So for me, I'm a monthly contributor at Selma University and Albany State. Okay. Every month, both of them get uh, $50 a month or each one of them get $50 a month for me, uh, $600 a year, but I'm always giving in other areas as well as I can. So I think for one, Giving of our resources is important um, because the, uh, the PWIs have people who think about the legacy. They think about them, they leave things to them. And so we haven't been taught that because we hadn't had much, um, but also being willing um, for, to pursue opportunities, maybe teaching at those places for those who have academic backgrounds. Um, there's a lot of virtual options now because just like the church is going that way, I think more universities will eventually uh, go that way as well. Well, we already we had already seen that a lot. I mean, um, so even more than what we've seen in the past, I believe. So those opportunities are there. Uh, I think talking them up um, to other people, to our circles, um, those who we come in contact with, who are able to do more, whether they're Caucasian or African American or, or, or Latino, whatever they may be, um, pushing the message of what they stand for, uh, pushing the understanding there's some great people, they develop great people um, and pushing 
uh, our younger people to consider them more often. Uh, I think those are ways that we can be supportive in those initiatives and in those areas. Um, As one who is more, you know, leaning again in that academic space, doing research and, you know, working to be published and trying to, you yeah. know, there's a work to be, that we do in that area. Yeah. How can we also come back and take some of those academic skills and partner them up with the local church, particularly the black church? Man, the church needs people to do research. A lot of the research that we get now um, are by predominantly white organizations. Um, lately, the Barna Group just put out a black church study last year, which I was proud of because they actually tapped into black academia, people who have ministry and academia in their background and utilize them so that the information now, because a lot of times the information we get does not necessarily resonate with us. It's more catered to our Caucasian brothers and sisters. So we don't have enough um, of our people writing about church growth, uh, writing about planting, writing about those things, writing about church merges, because that's something else that is okay. going to be very vital. Now, again, sometimes I'm out of the box, but <laughs> I, I, I see this happening. And so I shared this in a denominational meeting a few months ago. And, I, and the looks I got, look, people looked at me like, uh, I thought we could trust Solomon. Solomon <laughs> but there was a few that looked that way. I got a few others after the meeting and said, you know what, young man, you're right about that. Because again, this pandemic has caused us to think about what's effective and efficient. Why does it make sense for you over here to have 10 people over a year on the same, because a lot of our churches can be right on the same corner. And a lot would, of it is pride. I would agree. Um, now, it's, now, how do we begin to have those conversations? Well, we haven't seen a whole lot of great models for us in the Black church. We've seen our counterparts do it and do it well. But in, for us, there's this big pride thing that has to be eventually dealt with. Yeah. And understand that it's not about a spirit of competition, but it ought to be about a spirit of collaboration. That, that's why it doesn't make sense sometimes now that I think about it. Uh, we see churches that do duplicate things and they'd be right around the corner from each other. And I'm not talking about major churches. I'm just talking about average church. Average church, 75 to You go over here and build a life center. Then I, I'm, I'm across the street from you. I build a life center. Well, why did I build a skating rink? So when right. people want to play basketball, they come to your place. When your kids want to skate, they come to my place. And then Joe Blow down the street, he, he does a swimming pool. Why can't we? No strategy. You know, Lack of strategy. Yeah. those type things. Yeah. To be efficient in our resources and effective and partner together to do greater things. One of, the, one of the blessing things that we've done during this pandemic as a church is that we have distributed almost 800,000 pounds of food since June of 2020 through a partnership through our state convention okay. um, that opened the door for us to, to begin um, through that uh, first round of stimulus funding, the grants that were given out to uh, these organizations to do provide food boxes. So we got a part of that and then that led to another partnership where we give out about 20,000 pounds of food once a month, enough That's to feed stuff. over 300 families. But here, here's, here's what we try to do. I try to we, we do it in a central location and I try to utilize or get all of my sister churches in my community to be a part of it. 
doesn't always work that way. They'll show up for a little while and they'll fall off. Um, and I don't understand why we are like that. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, how can we do this over at our church? Why? We're doing it at a central location. It's not at anybody's church. We're meeting here and the one of the best places in the county to do it in, all we need is just send volunteers. Everybody work together. Everybody's name can be on the fly. It, I don't care. It's about meeting the needs of the people in our community. Right. And I think that's one of the things that hinders the black church. Because when we get angry, we go over here, somebody goes over here. Everybody hasn't been, if they're truth of the matter, they have not been God-led to the plan of church. Some people have just done it. Yep. Out of anger. But there are some people like yourself, like my father was, the Lord led them to do this. And so if we ever can deal with that spirit of competition within the black church sometimes, um, there's no telling what we can do, what, what greater good we can do. We've done a lot, but there's so much more for us to do. I love it. Learn to collaborate together. And I love it. By, by buying power economically. Um, there's so much stuff that we can do if we learn to work together cohesively without one person worrying about who's going to get the glory or who's going to get the shout out. Um, everything I have done in whatever position I've led, um, served in, it's not about Solomon. I say that quickly. And I don't take every position. I've turned some stuff down. I tell guys, when they're like, we well, need to do this. No, you know what? Let me pray about that. Right. Let me pray about it because I need to make sure this is what God wants me to do. Uh, because I know that if I go out here on, on my own, in my own flesh, it's going to fail. But if I go out here and I do it uh, being God-led, now it's up to God to make this successful. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I've got two final questions and I know we're up against the time with you. Well, I've enjoyed myself. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm enjoying it as well. I'm certain that listening audience is, is enjoying this, but let me, let me ask you this question. If you could speak to the, to the 21 year old, each of Maine Solomon, um, what advice would you give that young man? Um, if I knew at 21 that I was going to be preaching, I probably would have got all of my schooling out of the way at one time before pastor. If I knew that, if God had showed me that, um, that's probably what I would have done. But most of all, I I would say be patient. Be patient and be more intentional in following the Lord's path for your life. Mm Because there were some things that I experienced in life, uh, in my younger life, uh, that were experienced out of my ambition, trying to get down the road a little faster than I did, than, than what God intended, uh, but also being um, not listening to wise counsel. And so I've learned over time to be more intentional. Um, to be to, to, to be patient, to watch God work and kind of uh, and kind of follow his, his lead. And finally, what advice would you give someone who's aspiring to leadership in the church? 
be God-led because, because you're gifted or because people like you, people will always push you um, faster than probably God is ready for you to be pushed. Um, trust God's timing. Uh, God's timing is everything. Uh, I'm sitting there right now um, and know that God has a purpose for everything that you go through. Um, surround yourself with wise counselors, as I said a minute ago. Get you some trustworthy mentors for life and ministry. Um, people that you uh, trust to speak into your life. Um, people that are not afraid to tell you no. People that are not afraid to tell you when you're wrong. And get you a circle of friends that can be your accountability, accountability partners. You need people that you can bounce things off of. You need people who understand your strengths, your gifts, and your weaknesses. Um, and so I would truly say that um, if you're aspiring for roles in church, um, just, you know, just, just follow God's timing. And I say that because currently I'm, I'm a candidate for a regional president position here in Alabama. Four years ago, God led me to run and I lost that. I lost the race, the election by 11 votes. God had a purpose for what, what he did. When the time came around, even though people thought I was just a shoe in this time around, I was hesitant because I wanted to hear from God. God uh, showed me or led me to do it again. And this time I'm running unopposed, which speaks to what many say to the respect that people in our region have for me. Um, a region of over 200 churches um, that what pastors and, and people have for me, I don't know. I do know it was God's time because God orchestrated some things to where he showed it to me that this was truly my time by the way he opened some doors to make it be this way. So uh, trust God's timing. Be faithful to whatever God gives you. Be faithful. Um, one of the blessings I have, the Lord allow, has allowed me to preach in a lot of places. And people say, well, why do you stay in, in Lionville, Alabama, pastoring a church in Lionville, in a rural place? Right. They want to know the answer. And I say, because God hadn't told me otherwise. And I'm being faithful to the work that God has given me. And I realize that you don't have to be in a major place to do major ministry. You just got to be willing and available uh, and be faithful to the work that God has put you in. And so I pastor my church, uh, which is the largest African-American church in that area, uh, as faithful as I can in a rural place in low Clay County, Alabama, 15,000 residents. Uh, I, I pastor that church as if I'm pastoring a mega ministry. Uh, and so do be faithful to what God gives you. And I, and I promise and I believe that God will open doors and take you places that you would never imagine. Preaching and pastoring has taken me places I never would imagine. Uh, and as I get older, I become more sentimental on this journey because I'm almost, I'm looking at it, I'm almost 20 years in. Of preaching and passion, I'm saying to myself, um, as I knock on the door, I mean, 17, 18 years of preaching, 17 years of pastoring, I'm looking at it, man, the Lord has done a lot for me. He's put me in a lot of places, given me a lot of favor. 
And it wasn't because of me. I've made a lot of mistakes. But God is, again, as I, as I said at the beginning, he orchestrates our steps and our stops. I believe that. All of that is, all of that and, is great advice. And God has placed people in our, in our lives um, who has poured into us, man, um, that I'll never be able to pay them back. You know, my, my dad, the example that he gave us as a man of God, as a, as a faithful teacher of his word, and a husband and father um, to, to man, Uncle Cedric, man, who uh, played such a hand in my life was uh, wanting to attain and uh, learn as much as possible. And to Grandma Vera, who gave me that social justice consciousness. Um, and, you know, there are many times I'm so appreciative of the, of the seeds they planted in my life. Oh, just act, just, just real testament to, to really aspire to leadership. You need the help of others. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And because of that, when you realize that, man, you know, you have a responsibility to help others. You know, uh, Nick Saban has this thing where he will take coaches who've been fired, bring them on his staff, um, allow them to kind of work and, and people begin to see them in a different light again and they get another job. I mean, the Lord has kind of done that for me with preachers and pastors. Guy, I have a real heart for pastors who, who dealt with some stuff and they were sincere about ministry but got off track somewhere. Um, you know, if I hear about a pastor who's falling for whatever reason or going through a tough time, I'll preach them in a heartbeat. I'll, I'll reach out to them and listen, I'm a brother, man. I've been there, I'm, you know, her or him. And listen, if you need a place to preach, you know, come on to Spring Hill, I, I, I'll, I'll help you. Um, God, God's grace, man, that's been all, over all of us. To, to whom, you know, people say to whom much is given, much is required. To as much grace as God has given us, we are required to give grace to others. Amen. Yeah, that's so, what it boils down to. I'm thankful. I'm appreciative of what God has done and um, blessed me with an outstanding wife. And so um, the Lord is kind. And as my, 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 my favorite saying in Spring Hill Church, hear me always say that God is faithful. You know, he's faithful, man. That's good stuff. Well, we have enjoyed. Well, thank you, man. Thank having you. an opportunity to speak with you and hear from you and all that you're doing in the ministry, the work that you're doing for the kingdom and the leadership that you are providing. And so as always on the Empowerment Network, until I get a chance to talk with you again, I'll see you around like a donut. <laughs> may the Lord bless you and certainly may he keep you. <laughs>